Welcome to Devices and Desires, Finding a Sacred World in a Secular Age. I'm Father Brian Wandell from Church of the Atonement in Buffalo, and I have with me here some close friends of mine. We have Father Andrew Thibault from St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church. How are you, Andrew? Doing well, Brian. Happy to be here with you. And St. Bart's in Tonawanda, New York. We also have from St. Bart's, uh, Mr. James Kibbe. Uh, Jimmy, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good, and I'm actually live at St. Bartholomew's. Excellent. The live only on this- one in that the only one in that location. We're in yeah. four different places right now doing this episode by Zoom due to social distancing, social distancing due to the coronavirus. I'm so we also the, have... Yeah, I'm on the scene right now. You know, everything's pretty qu- calm and quiet, but you know, about any moment, anything could happen. You never know in a church, anything yeah. can happen. Uh, and finally, Deacon Matt Trailer in your own home, the trailer, trailer. Uh, Matt, how are you doing? Brian, thanks for having me on from the Wandell Mansion over there. (laughs) We call it a manse, not a mansion, a manse. Um, Yes, Father. So this is Devices and Desires. Uh, Just a note for our listeners, the music that you heard coming into this, that was um, uh, performed, produced by Jimmy over here. Jimmy Kibbe, can you tell us something about that song that you wrote? Yeah, um, it is a song that I wrote. (laughs) <laughs> profound Jimmy. no it's, it's very profound no uh actually um yeah so i recorded it over at my friend's house uh, evan anstey he's also a singer songwriter in buffalo we've been working on a project together and um when we were talking about doing this podcast um devices and desires uh it was kind of inspired from that and um still working out like the actual song itself there are actually uh lyrics and stuff to it that i'm hoping to get together at some point and release maybe as a single but uh that's kind of where the music comes from so hopefully people like it and i don't know yeah that's about it great thanks here at devices and desires we are looking at the culture we live in exposing cracks in the stories that it tells stories of progress self-image success and happiness and we're trying to figure out what it looks like for the gospel to open up from within that fragmented culture and so we're going to bring our perspective as Anglican Christians, but for our listeners, whoever you are, we hope you'll track with us as we examine the devices and desires of our own hearts and those of our culture. Uh, so in this episode, we're launching off from our previous one where we're talking about smartphones and technology, how that affects uh, the life of faith. And, and we, made, uh, we, we, we talked about one point in there. We were reflecting on the Barna study about what it's, what it's like uh, to live in this kind of age. And, uh, and one important thing that, that we really need to do, we, we talked about, was um, having multi-generational relationships. And, and just after uh, recording that episode, we, uh, we, saw, we saw an article uh, in The Atlantic, the, the monthly magazine The Atlantic, by David Brooks. And this article was about, uh, I believe it's called uh, I have it right, the, the Fall of the Nuclear Family or something like that. And, uh, and it's looking, about, looking at, uh, okay, what has happened to the nuclear family over time? Um, and, uh, and, and, and how does that affect how we think about family now? So, so this is the question we wanna jump into uh, from our perspective, our kind of uh, theological uh, understanding of culture. Uh, what's wrong with the nuclear family? Uh, shouldn't it be a stable solution to more of our problems? Uh, how, how do we how do we uh, look at this? Uh, so we're going to use our framework. Look at uh, we see the, the the stories of our culture kind of like cement, uh, like it looks like a good strong narrative. Uh, but then on closer inspection, it turns out there's there's cracks within that. It's not so solid as it seems. And then and then we're going to look at what it, what what it's like for the the gospel to flourish from within that, like a like a plant coming up through the cracks in cement. Um, I, I got to be honest, when, when I hear the phrase nuclear family, no matter how many times I look at that phrase, I picture an atomic bomb going off in a house. Uh, so wait, that's not, that's not right. Um, yeah, that's can, probably can someone. Maybe in some of our homes. I, I would that's, say that's, that's better than, uh, that's, that, I don't know, for me, I think of the Simpsons. Maybe okay. it's just my mind, but I just. Okay, so question, what, what's a nuclear family? Can someone just answer that real quick? The uh, basic family unit of a mother, a father, and uh, children. 
yeah, like a, together in one place. Supposed to be like a like a nucleus of a cell, right? Yeah, it's right. like the, the very center of, of something. Um, and in many ways, when we say that, it's like, oh, well, that's the definition of family, right? How, how is nuclear family different than family? Um, and that, that's where I want to start out with, um, is what, what is the world we're living in as far as family? Um, and maybe, Andrew, can I just ask you this? Um, you know, if for us, our main definition of family is that, um, have, have people in the past seen family in a different way than we do now? Um, and how, how has that changed over time? Yeah, I think that they have. Um, and not necessarily in the sense that, that, that basically family unit wasn't part of the vision of a family. I, I think um, when we look back in history, we see that there's always been almost a centrality around parents and their, their offspring, right? Uh, but for most of history, that's been understood, that unit has been understood as belonging to a, a bigger unit, a broader unit. So that family was expanded out uh, beyond just the, the parents and the children to also include uh, the parents' parents and also the parents' siblings. So grandparents, aunts, uncles, um, as well as cousins. And, um, and you sort of have this uh, expanding out of genetic kin. Um, but also we understood that to even be to sort of kinship to go beyond that. Right. Uh, and that's some of Brooks case or argument in this article is that historically we've seen kinship in much broader terms than just surrounding the nuclear family. Um, and we can debate what, what role the nuclear family had in all of those kinship structures uh, but I think what, what's not debatable is that the nuclear family, or what we call the nuclear family, uh, was part of a bigger kinship group. Um, now, we do see that sort of change through history, and there are different forces um, that, that contribute to that. Brooks highlights uh, the Victorian era and the Victorian ideal of the, what we might more accurately call, I think, the atomized nuclear family, the nuclear family um, cut off from other... Uh, kinship groups from uh, belonging to a broader community. But I think we actually see some of that deteriorate before that. You have the technological revolution that happens before that when you see um, a shift from being agricultural. And so in an, in an agricultural setting, the, the family is an economic unit into itself, right? Everybody has a role to play on the farm. Um, Everybody works on the family farm. Everybody contributes to the family farm and everybody has a role to play. But with the shift in to a technological society, you now have fathers leaving, and it's pr primarily fathers, but women at some, do some too, uh, leaving the family farm to go find more lucrative work in factories. And then you also see families then leaving rural farms and moving in to cities. Um, and that changes the way that we view family as well. Now, instead of having more of our genetic kin around us, now we're in apartment complexes and uh, squalors in the middle of an urban setting, um, more atomized, more um, independent than other things. And you're not seeing that buildup of um, the same sort of kinship groups that you have back in more rural communities. And that precedes the Victorian era, but there is certainly a shift that happens also in the Victorian era where this, this, idea, this becomes idealized, right? These new structures and forms are, are thought to be more the normal way that things are meant to be. And then, then you know, we can carry that forward to our own day too. And in, in this article in The Atlantic, uh, David Brooks makes an interesting point that uh, our image of the nuclear family as like the thing in and of itself that kind of exists on its own and is stable on its own and is the thing that society needs. Um, like that, that could really, that only really held for actually a fairly small portion of time. Maybe, I don't know, somewhere the 1920s, 30s, 40s, especially in the 50s. By the mid 60s, it couldn't really hold anymore. And it right. had to do with, well, was it, you know, when people moved more into cities, but it was possible for 
uh, one person in the family, typically the father, to earn enough income for the whole family. Um, and and these, these different aspects of society being able, like, yes, people move towards cities, but they still had strong enough communities to take on some of the extended family functions. But this, all of this only could kind of work together under certain kind of cultural conditions. Right. And it, it only worked for so long, right? Yeah, um, and, and he does It's not the same right now. He doesn't name it specifically, uh, at least not throughout the whole thing, but we, there's a major event that happens in our culture around 1965, and that we name that as the sexual revolution, right? And in that time, uh, you sort of have this confluence of um, the, the elevating of the individual self, uh, but also the liberation of um, the self from some of these family structures in, in the name of... Um, self-actualization or uh, other things generally around the idea of sex in various different ways. Um, you also have um, at that time, it was assumed up until that point that everybody still had a role to play in the family, right? So it may have been the case that the father left the house to be the primary monetary earner, uh, leaving behind the wife and kids. But in many cases, at least in the idealized way, and this isn't always the way that it works out, we know that, uh, but there was some understanding that uh, the mother who stayed at home was also contributing to the ec economic welfare of the family, right? She, we call her a homemaker. Uh, she was contributing um, by uh, taking care of the kids, by um, taking care of the, the hearth and home, to use uh, Brooks's adage. Um, and that wasn't denigrated in the same way as it was after the sexual revolution, where that was seen to be um, a, 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 something of oppression, right? Rather than yeah. being a key role within the economic unit, now it's, it's seen as oppressive. And so from that point on, we, we then see the, the breakdown of um, this ideal. And in some way, so that's, so we've kind of got like two, two visions going on too, right? One, one group that has a vision for the family to break down or become more individualized, or at the very least to emphasize like our need for freedom, um, our need to make our own decisions or to come up with our own kind of structures for family or community that we think works for me personally, you know, uh, and those things break down the family. And on the other side, there's all kinds of both a statistical research, but also sort of um, traditional moral wisdom surrounding like the need for the family and the ways that children do better when they have a father around, do better when they have both parents around, all those kind of things. So there's what has been pinned as more of a conservative vision, uh, wanting the nuclear family. And then what's sometimes seen as more of a progressive vision, emphasizing the freedom Jimmy, can I just ask you, you know, I've heard you wrestle with this sometimes about feeling pigeonholed into conservative or progressive uh, boxes, like you got to pick one or the other. How, how do you see this as you hear this, like these different visions for family? Well, it's kind of interesting because as uh, Father Tebow was talking about like the sexual revolution, well, like before that you had the 1950s. And so this, this idea of the nuclear family really kind of came to fruition in the 1950s. Things were a lot more prosperous after the, after the war. Um, you had, and, and I feel like in a lot of ways, conservative ideals, people were going to church. There was a lot more of these institutions um, that people were engaging in that really helped to establish and uh, cause the uh, nuclear family to thrive. And it's just kind of interesting that um, 1965, in a lot of ways, when you had that rev sexual revolution, it was in a lot of ways a revolution to the things that were kind of established prior in the prior decade that for so long, you know, Americans, I think, just thought of that was the ideal American life was what was there. You know, mother was home, you know, was the homemaker taking care of the children, father would come in, bring the income. And like Father uh, Thibault, uh, alluded to was in the night in 1965 you know all that started to fall apart all that started to get challenged and there was this move to a more progressive uh view a more individual individualistic uh view of of life and and how that affected the family and i think a lot of times with conservatives i feel like they're kind of wanting to go back to what things were in 1950 
you know, this ideal American family. Um, whereas progressives, they want to move to a more individ individualistic um, view of society because they feel, and, and I guess really it's just like, both of them feel like, you know, both of them want to thrive. Like, I feel like there's this idea that they want uh, people and they want Americans and they want the America to thrive, but they have different visions of it. And the difficulty is that with conservatives, it's easier to have that opinion if you're on the more affluent side of things, because that has a lot to do with what you're able, what you're able to afford to make the nuclear family still viable. So you're able to afford babysitting or childcare. You're able to afford tutors. You're able to afford all these things that really help to um, support the nuclear family. Whereas for people that are lower on the economic, um, you know, it's a lot harder because you have parent, both parents that have to work most of the time. Um, some, some situations where the father's not even around. Um, and, all, and other, you know, economic strains and stuff that put uh, on the family, availability of education and emphasis on education. Sometimes education isn't as emphasized as much because there's more of an emphasis on economic stability and trying to make enough ends or make the ends meet and, and all that kind of stuff. And so the difficulty with the conservative and with the progressive uh, is just is trying to find like, okay, the balance and uh, within that. And, and the difficulty is, is yeah, it, it almost seems like we're set up between one or, two or the other. So this is, yeah, so this is good as we go into, so what's, uh, what's wrong with the vision? And we try to do this in every episode. So like we get a, there's a vision that's given to us of the good life. And in some ways, what we've got here are two, di two different visions of the good life. And both of them have their problems as we think about them as, um, as Christians with, with biblical worldview is like, we have, we have, uh, how does uh, a vision for um, uh, the nuclear family work out in society? Like, is, is this something that, that we can as Christians live out or does it need more supports? Uh, something like that. Who is it failing right now? And then the other vision of like being extremely individualized uh, not needing the family. How is that not working out right now? Um, Matt, can I just ask? Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I'd like to. So we're we're sort of pitting it this way, right? We're um, sort of that you have the conservative idea, which is based on the family, and you have the progressive idea that's more individualistic. I think, though, what we need to recognize is that in our context, both are fundamentally liberal. And by that, I mean um, not liberal in the sense of being progressive necessarily, but liberal in the sense of being philosophically liberal, uh, emphasizing the individual, right? Uh, liberating the individual from uh, outside authorities, right? So even the problem with the conservative view, uh, one might say, is that even that has been co-opted by the, the uh, elevating of the individual so that you have now families, even in the conservative view are about self uh, expression. So, okay, Andrew, you're taking Matt's point now. So, well, I, but, uh, <laughs> I, but I just want us to be clear that this isn't like, this yeah, yeah. isn't a conservative versus progressive thing that actually the critique goes much deeper than that. And it includes both camps. And even the, the idea of the nuclear family is an atomized nuclear family that's been, liberated from other outside authorities but even within that it's made up of uh, liberated individuals such a i can then even in the conservative camp the idea is to get the kid out of the house right mm -hmm. to liberate the kid and the kid is only bound up by individual choice not by other bonds now matt can elaborate on that but i want us to be clear this isn't like a conservative versus progressive thing that actually the critique is deep deeper and we should be critiquing both of these. Ideas. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, when we, it's more like on the most superficial level of how you hear people chat about it, you know, in the, right. uh, what, what they, what they, what they think is going to get them political points or something like that. But, right, but so, I, I would say it's a misframing mm -hmm. of the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I find that helpful. Um, Andrew, thanks for kind of clarifying that. Um, I was thinking along those terms, as well, particularly um, 
just thinking more deeply and and wanting to ask that biblical question um you know in in some ways at, at least how brooks says it here um he says we've moved from big interconnected and extended families which help protect the most vulnerable in society from the shocks of life uh, from the shocks of life to smaller detached nuclear families i think what you're pushing back against andrew is that's not what the nuclear family is supposed to be um, and then he adds, these nuclear families give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. Uh, what Jimmy was talking about, about the sort of uh, economic cause that's going on here. Um, and I guess, yeah, I see this as problematic because kind of in modern Western society, we like to define um, sort of our physical life, um, um, what we might say is, as Christians in biblical terms, as the structures of creation, the sort of givenness of the family. I mean, biology just works this way. Um, we like to divide that sort of physical life uh, from our moral life. So, oh, um, because I'm, you're talking about expressive individualist, um, because I'm, I can choose, I'm primarily a, a willing thing, a thing that wills. Um, that it doesn't matter what the the structures of um, reality are, our physical reality. Um, I can just uh, choose to be a sort of individual um, that expresses my my moral life, my um, how I'm going to act, um, my behavior in the world. Uh, is those are two separate spheres. Um, but in the scripture, that's not so. And those could line up, you know, with kind of the conservative progressive thing um, that you were critiquing, Andrew, um, of like, well, you know, maybe the progressives tend to um, denigrate the, um, the kind of physical embodied parts um, of creation. And perhaps the conservatives are less concerned with sort of that um, part of our, our moral ethical um, life of um, caring for the vulnerable. Um, and so, but uh, in the Bible, uh, for God, it is not so. Um, and in fact, our created life, our physical life, the creation, um, is in fact clarified um, and uh, given purpose and meaning by our moral life. Uh, that is how God is calling us to act in the world. Um, so to separate these two things, um, to act like one can be understood apart from the other. I think that's along the lines of what you're talking about, Andrew, in terms of liberalism, that um, the sort of individual self-choosing being separate than the structures of society and whatnot, um, in this sense of, oh, I'm afraid of um, willing to power, so I'm the only one who can will, and that's you know, the sort of um, basic reality that we're dealing with here. Um, no, in fact, we're created, and then that creation is clarified by um, what God is, has told us to do, um, what God is inviting us into to live a, a proper moral life. Um, and so we, we find that, uh, Father Brian, you mentioned wisdom as a, a sort of key category in something you said. Um, and in fact, that's what wisdom is. When we look at something like Proverbs 3, when we look at something like Romans 1, there's this correlation between how God created us and the moral life that then we should live this way. Um, but that moral life also includes um, that these created structures, mainly families and, um, and other created structures, biological created structures, are meant to serve the vulnerable, are meant to protect those people um, whom perhaps their family structures have, have fallen apart, perhaps death, something like that, um, perhaps you know, sin and, and breaking apart from your family structures by choice, um, that these are, are meant to be um, in fact, um, taken care of by the sort of given structures that we have. So I think that's one issue that we're dealing with here when we um, look at this uh, divide between like, oh, is it justice or is it like um, created structure? Um, well, it, it's both. Uh, and the Christian in our politic has to say it's actually both. We can't have one without the other. Uh, great. So. Uh... Let me just, there are some specific ways that so this is fouling our culture right now, that all this is coming out in our culture. Um, can, can, can any of you give suggestions or ideas on some specific ways our culture is, is um, or it seems like the ball is being dropped and we're seeing that, the effects of that? Yeah, I, I think, um, like Brooke mentions, the, the, den the denigration of the family. Um, 
and maybe not denigration in the sense of the devaluing, but I think we definitely see the devaluing of it, which is leading to the denigration in the sense of um, families are being split up. Um, we see more and more uh, people waiting to get married. Um, and all of these things are, uh, like Matt was talking about, the, the, fa- the family from a Christian perspective is given as um, a created good. Uh, it's given as something that's actually meant to lead to human flourishing. Um, and not only for the sake of the so-called nuclear family, but also for the sake of the vulnerable. Uh, it's supposed to be the place where we are able then to bring the vulnerable in, um, to participate in the stability, to participate in love that they won't find other places. Um, but because we're seeing the families breaking down, then not only are we not seeing moral formation happening the way that's supposed to happen, but we're actually seeing the opposite happen. Um, we are being misformed, not just not formed, but misformed uh, in part because as the families are breaking down, uh, children are being hurt in the crossfires. Um, we're seeing actually the creation of more and more vulnerable people, less of the structures together that are meant to bring life and hope and flourishing. Uh, so there are less Ability, there's less opportunity to bring those in, but also because we've begun to to view the family at, in that nuclear sense, where it's just like it's basically us against the world. Then we don't we don't have that porcity that that ability then to bring other people into our into our mix to bring them into the warp and woof of our lives with us, um, and we're not seeing also the the building out of that that those king groups. Uh, in a way that we're we're meant to be doing either uh, the family families are moving apart they're they're not staying where where we have extended family we're we're not in one place long enough to be able to build meaningful relationships with other families that we might be able to build out those kinship groups um, and so we're seeing moral breakdown we're seeing um, hurt we're seeing uh, the vulnerable left on the margins. And I think it's it's a vicious circle, right? So the uh, as we define things more, I mean, it's not even a circle. It like it gets worse and worse. The the as we as the family is primarily defined in terms of um, you know the the parents and children or one parent and children or whatever it is that we we de-emphasize the other relationships. And because of that, though the fam- like that group of people, like you said earlier, Andrew, doesn't have enough in and of itself to do everything that children or people in a family need and therefore it forces us to go outside of the family to find those things and we we end up um we find ourselves we find our identity outside of that um and and further weaken those family bonds and expectations for for further family can i so in some ways the the nuclear family that that, or that that like that, that sense of the nuclear family that has developed is something that has contributed to its own demise. Right, well, and as Brooks points out, is that not only is the, the nuclear family breaking down, but all of our, uh, he doesn't use this term, but our, what we call our mediating institutions. Uh, so like other social groups that we might belong to uh, are also breaking down. So when we go to look outside the family to find other meaning and purpose, uh, we're not looking to the church anymore. We're not looking towards other institutions. It, used to come alongside the family and help to bring that meaning and purpose and identity. Now all those other institutions are breaking down. So now we're left outside without, um, without any other place to look for meaning and purpose. And so we're seeing suicide rates go up. We're seeing addiction rates go up. We're seeing um, looking for that meaning and purpose in, in other places, um, which like you said, it just becomes a, this vicious circle. Um, like Brooks, even Brooks points out that the family is a means for prosperity, right? And he, he shows that statistically. And so if we're breaking those things down, then we're, we're, we're cutting our legs out from underneath us. Jimmy, go ahead. Yeah, just uh, real quick. Um, as we're talking about this, um, it, it, one of the things that, going back to the economic thing, I, I, I'm just reminded of uh, when Christ says, uh, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And a lot of these changes that we've seen in family structure have to do with that economic aspect of it. It has to do with the idea of chasing the American dream. And I feel like 
we're seeing these problems because their hearts our, our hearts are not in the right right place. Our hearts are not um, where they should be. Our hearts instead are on wealth and on prosperity. And it's to the point where a lot of uh, like our family, we're just almost kind of like sacrificing it where we're just saying it's a sacrifice I have to make It's a sacrifice I have to make. And while maybe some people won't necessarily admit that they're sacrificing their family for the sake of their career, or for the sake of to make more money, um, you know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And when you see, you know, kids having to basically be raised, say, in daycare or um, having to be, you know, without one or the other parent because they're working two jobs or something like that. And I understand that for some people, they're almost kind of put in that position because of the economic situation. But for other people, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's this wealth and this economic prosperity that drove people to seek out more of a nuclear um, family and then just how that's really caused more and more problems in our society. Uh, and, 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 and again, I feel like the, there's really no answer. Like we're not answering the actual issue. We're just saying we just need to strengthen the family. Well, what does that mean? Strengthen the family. You know, everybody is more so thinking, well, I got to work more. I got to make more money. I think that's what's really kind of going on. But like at the same time saying we need to strengthen the family. And I just feel like, we're like, we're not really addressing the issue. We're just, um, we're just throwing something out there. Well, Brooks so um, some, yeah, Brooks gives some kind of concrete things here. I think it kind of argues for itself um, with children. He says children of single parents or unmarried cohabiting parents tend to have worse health outcomes, worse mental health outcomes, less academic success, more behavioral problems, higher absentee from school rates. Um, so that's children. Uh, single moms tend to be more stressed. Um, tired mothers trying to balance work and parenting, having to reschedule work when family life gets messy. He also talks about the elderly. Um, he quotes, 35% of Americans over 45 say they are chronically lonely. Um, the African-American community, uh, two-thirds of African-American children lived in single-parent families compared with a quarter of white children. The differences between white and black family structure explain 30% of the affluence gap, according to um, one uh, researcher. Um, but as you're saying, Jimmy, um, for a number of these groups, um, the advice to go live in a nu nuclear family isn't really advice because they're not choosing these things, you know? And so we've got a bit of a mess to, to talk about. Um, how can we help out with this? There's a, there's a Christian psychologist in the 70s, 80s, 90s. His name was Don Joy. Uh, he was down at um, Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. And uh, I love, he, he had this phrase. He said that the family is the first curriculum. Uh, so in a family, we, it's not just that we teach children, uh, like the parents teach the children things, but that th through all of the interactions, the roles, that kind of thing, that's how children learn, you know, what's allowable, what, what, what's the, what, what identities are available to them, that kind of thing. So that our reasons for doing this are many that, um, that family is important because like Matt said, there's many outcomes that you just, you can't get past that family is important. Um, and it is for all of us, it's a curriculum, we might say catechesis for, for life. Uh, because it's called it a schoolhouse. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So it's, it's, um, it's something that is really important. We, we, we should definitely get into some positive vision here. Uh, there are many reasons to criticize what we see around us. So we're gonna take a break for brief music here. Again, I'm Father Brian, this is Devices and Desires. We're finding a sacred world in a secular age and particularly trying to find that in the landscape of family here in America in the 21st century. We'll come back and we'll start to look at what uh, it's like for the gospel to flourish within the context that we're in today. You are listening to Devices and Desires, finding a sacred world in a secular age. Like and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash devices and desires. Welcome back to Devices and Desires. I'm Father Brian. We've been talking about the nuclear family in society and the extended family and how these different groups of relationships are important for us. 
but uh, I think we just we just mentioned a minute ago, you can't just tell people to have a family all of a sudden because it's important. You can't just tell them to have good family structures. So what are we going to do, especially as Christians now trying to live out our faith? Um, what does it look like for the kingdom of God to work out with families, nuclear families, extended families, relationships in, in, our, in our culture? Um, I, I'd love to just throw this out to, to all of you first. Um, you know, so we, we have families. Uh, what, what does the New Testament tell us about family? Um, the church is family, families within the church. Does anyone want to jump on that before, as we get into it? Uh, I though would like to broaden it a little bit. Um, so we're, we're tempted as Christians to look at what the new Testament says about family, but I think actually we, we need to look at, uh, the full of scripture, fullness of scripture, um, to get, I think the, the fullest understanding of, uh, the family in scripture. And I think they actually, the two coalesce, the old Testament, and the new Testament, uh, work well together. And I think the picture that we get in both the old Testament and the new Testament um, is uh, an affirmation of the family. Um, I mean, you have Adam and Eve beginning in the garden. The New Testament begins with Joseph and Mary, uh, who have Jesus, right? The, the first Adam and the second Adam, both in the context of, of a nuclear family. But that family, as we go through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is contextualized. It's not an atomized unit unto itself. And indeed, both those families from the very start, exist for the sake of the world, right? They don't exist for themselves. Adam and Eve uh, are, exist to, to begin the race. Uh, uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus exist as a family to save the human race. Um, both of those are, are outward focused, even as they are um, a single unit. But what we see when you go through the Old Testament, and indeed that's carried in through the New Testament, is that those families are contextualized in, in a, um, a bigger king group. So think of um, the Israel. Think of uh, the, the giving of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Right there you have Moses at the precipice of going into the promised land, and he's addressing the people, giving them the law the second time. And he gives them that famous, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Um, the Lord is your God, right? And then he goes from there to give them, uh, here's how you pass this information on to your families. And the interesting thing is there is, in the Hebrew, he goes back and forth between the, the plural use of the word you and the singular use of the word you. So he's going back and forth between addressing the, the corporate Israel and in the context of corporate Israel, the specific families. And the specific families have uh, a responsibility to hand the faith on to um, their children. But they do that in the context of the community, which is to come alongside these families, to give them the support that they need to then be able to hand the faith down. And in doing that, they're able to reach them, the vulnerable on the margins, those without those structures. And I think we see that again in the New Testament, though in the New Testament it's transformed a little bit. So now that king group ex expanded beyond just Israel to now include Gentiles. And it, it gives us space to then bring others in even more than what was there before. So you see, uh, you see individual families. So think of um, Cornelius, right? Cornelius and his family are converted as a whole family and are brought into the context of the church. Uh, but then we see other instances of individuals being brought in um, and individual families being able to help, help, excuse me, offer support to the church. The church, the early church meets in individual homes, um, sometimes of like one believer in the home, sometimes of, of whole family groups. Um, but that vision is broadened out. So now the family still exists in the context, but it exists in a context that is more porous able to bring other peoples in from the margins to offer them support, to offer them salvation, uh, to offer them an opportunity towards the good life, to that human flourishing that we've talked about in the past. Um, it's interesting when, you know, when people become Christians in the New Testament and they are pulled out of their, social, their communities, 
in some ways. Um, you think of some of the the Jewish Christians who were rejected by the synagogues, which was like you know, critical, fundamental, you know, structure to their society, uh, or or Greeks who would no longer sacrifice again, major communal area, uh, women who became Christians. Um, you know, when you see that in the New Testament. Uh, if it says the woman's name and not a man's name, then she probably didn't come in with a husband or father, which means that she was potentially losing some relationships in some way in the process, or at least some support. Uh, and it's it's it, and somehow the the social reality that they come into is so deep and so powerful that it's able to be something for them. There's that great verse in, in the Psalms. Um, uh, God sets the lonely in families, and the church seems to certainly be a major a major part of fulfillment of that. Um, yeah. I think speaking, what, one way to think of it is is that the the church in the New Testament becomes sort of like uh, a parallel or alternative polis, um, able to exist alongside uh, the dominant like Roman and and Greek culture, but to do things aimed more uh, towards God rather than towards the Roman gods, right? Um, and in doing that, they're then able, as like you said, as, as um, individuals or families are coming into that, they're brought into a support structure um, that is able then to offer them security, prosperity, flourishing, those things that they're leaving behind um, in, from their Jewish culture or from their Greco-Roman culture right they're then they now able to find the fullness of that in the new testament church i think you see that too in uh, israel's exile being an alternative polis but and that's i think that's a good basis um in framing uh, what i'm about to say uh in that if we assume the church uh and what i'm about to say has to do with our marriage rights within the church so okay now that we're assuming that we have this bond of love and the holy spirit um, we're assuming that Christ cares about all people, all the nations. Um, and I, I can't find the origin of this quote, um, but uh, I've heard it a lot recently that the waters of baptism are thicker than blood, um, that um, the church is your primary identity. Now, within that uh, opportunity that we have for the vulnerable, um, for people who um, really have been hurt, perhaps, by family structures, um, you know, we have plenty of divorcees in the church. Um, we have plenty of um, kids who grew up in single parent homes like myself. Um, then within that structure, um, then what is one of the ways that God is providing some stability? And the answer is marriage and families within marriage. Um, and so our prayer book uh, has this to say about um, marriage that I think is really helpful and important as we think about, okay, what does God want? Um, the families in our churches to look like and then um what is that to do for the other people in our church um who aren't married or who are living out different vocations than marriage like celibacy but here's what our prayer book has to say about marriage it says the union of husband and wife in heart body and mind was ordained by god for five reasons the five reasons part i just said <laughs> one for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Two, for mutual joy. Three, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. Four, to maintain purity so that husbands and wives with all the household of God may serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ. And five, and this one was added in our prayer book, for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom in family, church, and society to the praise of his holy name. And that last one is mission, exactly what you guys were just talking about, um, that the families aren't supposed to be self-serving when it boils down to it, um, but the family is a means that God has ordained um, and created in our biological structures. These bodies create babies. That's just how it works. I mean, it has to work in this way in order for the human race to go on. Um, but that's not to serve the two people who are making the baby. The baby isn't a means of self-fulfillment. It's a means of worshiping and serving God and society um, yes. and forming people to love and serve him and each other um, so that the family actually has this mission outside of itself as well. 
Go ahead, Jimmy. Yeah, um, yeah. I'd just like to uh, kind of bounce off that. I, um, you know, reading in uh, Joshua today, um, where it talks about. I mean, of course, it's talking about the sin of Achan. You know, the that whole situation. But it's kind of interesting how the progression went. You know, to figure out like who was responsible for them not having, not being able to, um, you know, route uh, or, or destroy the city of Ai was. You know, they went like tribe, family, and then household and how they had this progression. And like, it's going back to when Father Tebow was talking about Israel. And the fact is, is that like, it was understood, like, you know, Israel was made up of these tribes, which then were made up of families that were made up of households. And I think a lot of times in the church, we see that too, or like, even when we look at like the church as being a body and you think about like our bodies um, and how we're made up of all these various parts and how they form one body. And I think that, uh, you know, talking about how, families within the church and going off a uh, Matt's uh, point when talking about marriage is it just like that it's like the church is the body but it's made up these families and these families are you know it's 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 the marriages and it's it's those families that are uh, make up that that church and so it's important that families are you know being missionally minded that we're that we're um, living in that body and that we're that we're serving in that body yeah, and there's two parts to that. There's the the missional role of biological families within the church, right? To be using their kind of built-in society of their family for the sake of drawing others into society. And then there's also just the fact that all these people in our churches who are not in families, not in healthy families, they are just as much a part of the church, yes. regardless of whether yes. they have a biological family or not. They have just as much of a role. In some ways, you know, the New Testament for us kind of relativizes the family a little bit because, because Jesus says not everyone is going to be called to this, whether it's for reasons that you chose or not. Not everyone's in this situation. Some, some people it's temporary, some people it's longer. Um, but all of you uh, are going to be part of, of my body and you all have spiritual gifts uh, as part of that. You all have mission as part of that. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's like an amazing vision, right? That, that we can all be part of that and it would be a family. But, you know, I, I was reading, um, I know I was listening to a podcast, uh, a business podcast the other day. Um, and it was about, uh, it was about startup companies and, uh, it was, a it was talking about, um, it was talking about Netflix and Netflix made the decision early on in their, when they're developing their corporate culture. Um, it, it was becoming very common for big companies to refer to themselves as families, like the family of our company. And Netflix said, mm, I don't know if that's quite right. We're gonna to refer to our company as a team, like a sports team, because like, mm, you really have to be able to play well in order to be part of this. Um, and I, I appreciated that because a corporation is not a family, right? Um, it's, it's not like we're gonna love people no matter what you're in, no matter what, like that's, that's not a family. And, uh, and, and I just want to translate that for a moment because it's easy to call many things like a family in our culture, but a family is something where people really are around each other a lot and spend quite a bit of time together. Like you, you really need those elements for it to be family. You, you need some level of like, we're always going to be there. We, it's not just that we show up to potlucks together. It's not just that we see each other on Sundays if we're going to call the church some level of family, the family of God, uh, which is exactly what we are, um, then, th then it can't just be a name that we give to um, our, our, our socializing together. Like it's got to affect that somehow. Um, so so this, is, this is the question that I want to ask all of you is if, if the vision is that big, then, uh, then how how would that really change the way that we're doing church to, to, to really implement that and see church that way? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that'll preach to use uh, an expression, right? And I, and I think, um, and I'll, I'll uh, let Jimmy go here in just a second, but um, one of the things I think we have to realize is that what we were pontificating a little bit there about what the, the family should be, what the church should be, right? And in some ways that's sort of an idealized vision. Uh, that's what we're to live into. Uh, and I think what many of us recognize is that's not what the church is, right? We, we're not always living into that. Uh, so I think 
to Father Brian to Brian's question is how do we live into that? How how are we supposed to be that? How and what where do we need to confess that we're not doing that? Mm-hmm. And especially the four of us who have biological families, it's easy for us to pay lip service to the idea of church as family, and then to retreat back into the houses that we live in as as our actual family, and then we say hi to these other people, right? So how do we not just pay lip service to that in the church? Yeah, I would say that the first thing we got to do is we got to look at our own family and our own um, experience of being in a family, like just our own biological families to see like, okay, what was my experience in that? And then compare it to what we understand family should be, because maybe a lot of us just haven't had that experience. And so going into any other setting, whether it be a church, corporation, when they say family, we could be thinking back and saying, boy, my family like really sucked. So like, I, like, I don't want to think about this as a family. You know, maybe I want to think about it as a team. Maybe I want to think about it as an organization, something that's going to separate it. And I think like, first thing we have to do is we have to like reclaim or we have to redeem in a way the idea of what a family is supposed to be. And we have to, uh, as individuals, we have to realize that maybe there were things and in our in our upbringing that weren't right and we maybe didn't have the appropriate um vision or experience of what a family should be and but thanks be to god um through our lord and savior jesus christ we have somebody that we can look to um as a model as far as what what we should be as a family so you think about like when paul talks about the family and he says, you know, the husband is the head of the household and he should love his wife as Christ loved the church. So maybe I didn't have a father who loved his wife as, you know, well, or okay, maybe I didn't have a good example there as far as what it meant to be a husband, but I can look to Christ and I can see Christ and how he loved the church. And I can glean from that what I should be doing. And I think the same thing goes with those that maybe didn't have a good family, you know, to recognize those things, but then to look at Christ and to see, you know, how did Christ love um, his disciples? How did Christ love the people? I mean, think about when uh, Jesus says, you know, how I long to gather, gather you under my wing, like a mother hand, hen gathers her chicks, but you're not willing. It's just, it's just, there was this motherly and, you know, fatherly love that was, that Christ had for people. And so I I feel like there are ways in which we can maybe, you know, glean from that, especially for those of us that maybe didn't have that experience of what a strong family is supposed to be. That's good. And I think more uh, on a practical note, um, we're just going to have to make decisions here. Uh, Brooks, you know, makes uh, some uh, excellent statements this way, though I'm not sure that I agree with his conclusion. Um, one thing he says, our culture is oddly stuck. We want stability and rootedness, but we also want mobility, dynamic capitalism, and the liberty to adopt the lifestyle we choose. And that's a, towards the kind of end of the article, but at the very end of the article, he may, or towards the end, uh, farther down, um, he cites um, just some obvious correlation between a nation's GDP and how many people live alone in that country. And he says, nations where a fifth of the people live alone, like Denmark and Finland, are a lot richer than nations where almost no one lives alone. And we're recording this during Lent, uh, leading up to Holy Week. And honestly, we're just going to have to make some sacrifices like Jesus if we actually want to love people. If we don't want to be lonely, if we want stability, then we're going to have to give stuff up. Um, I think it's uh, inherent in what we were talking about earlier of this idea of um, me as an expressive individual who, you know, my will is the most important thing, getting what I want, is just has to accept that, that we've got limitations. We live in society. You're not alone. Um, I think Brooke says, you know, it's, it's easy for kind of the, our middle class families to think of themselves as their own little island sort of thing. Well, that's just not true if you want to get beyond the loneliness of society, um, if you want to really experience the dynamism of the loving community of the church, you're just going to have to make sacrifices. And, and that's a real challenge for me as I was reading Brooke's article. I was like, oh man, he's describing me. Like I live with my family. I think of this as my you know, primary unit, that sort of thing. 
Um, and it begs the question, what kind of sacrifices do we as a family have to make? What kind of sacrifices do we as church families, individuals need to make um, in order to have more rootedness and stability? Um, one initial thing that comes to mind is, is thinking of the church as a parish. Um, and that is, as, as Anglicans, we believe that space is super important, um, that God actually, uh, the spirit um, of God, a non-bodily thing, um, uh, takes residence in bodily things and material things. Um, and similarly, we as people uh, aren't spiritual beings who float around nowhere. We're here in this place. Um, and so when we worship, we're worshiping within a neighborhood, within a community. Um, and so on, on a parish idea of, of church, um, in order to have rootedness, in order to have stability, um, we've all got to live together in, in some neighborhood, in some area. Um, there's one parish vision of people living within the mile of the altar of the church, you know. Um, and I think the idea is in a, uh, the, the market, the economy is driving us towards individualism because we can make more money. We'll be richer if we're alone and, and paying for services that otherwise the family would cover. That's what Brooks was talking about. Um, and we're going to have to decide what's more important, people or money. I mean, it's, it's uh, relatively straightforward like that. And we're also in that going to have to decide, is it important enough for me to move across the country to find a better paying job uh, than it is to stay in one community for the next 10, 20 years or something so that my yeah. kids, my church can all grow up together um, and actually create more of this extension. So I think we're just going to have to make some sacrifices. One of them is going to be money. The other one's going to be mobility. And we're kind of going to have to start balancing those things. I mean, we're not going to make legalistic rules on one hand, but it should definitely go into our wise discernment of how do we love other people? How do we live together? What am I going to have to give up um, in order to, to achieve these better ends? And if you, yeah. if you want really thick community, uh, like, like you said, it's going to be some sacrifice, but that's, that's part of commitment, right? So we're born into families that we don't choose. And we have some commitment to, we have major commitment to those families. We marry into a, a family that we do choose, but then it's sort of, it's unchosen from that point forward. Right. And some level of that commitment has to be there with, if, if we're going to develop church as family better. So when there are church events, um, our default should be to typically be a part of them. Um, if there's a wedding in our church, uh, even if we're not friends with that person, we go to that wedding um, for, for the most part. Uh, you know, if, if there's a baptism, we're, we're there for the baptisms. Uh, to some degree, I think, you know, I, I have long felt convicted of this and I have sometimes tried to live it out. I think uh, it should impact our living arrangements um, that uh, we should encourage people to live together when possible, especially those who are not married with children. Um, we have, uh, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm living in, I live in the west side of Buffalo right now in church, the, the homes around here, to be honest, most of them are designed for more than three or four people to live in. Um, and, uh, and we can find ways to do that better. Even families themselves don't need to be uh, completely, like literally walled off from the, the rest of the church around them. When I was living in D.C., um, I was living in Washington, D.C. for about nine years. And one place that Casey and I lived, we lived in a basement apartment under friends of ours. Um, by the time we moved out of that house, we had two kids. Our friends had three kids. And uh, we were just like a big commune in some ways. But it was, it was wonderful. We were separate. and We had separate areas. Uh, and then we moved out from there. And simply for economic reasons, because it was super expensive to live there, we rented an apartment and we subletted the basement to, um, to a young woman who lived there for a year. And, and then she moved out. Another young woman moved in after that. Uh, and uh, that was really important for our kids to be seeing those people on a regular basis. That, you know, again, the, the family as first curriculum, the more teachers those children have, the more they see those different roles, the ways they relate to people on a regular basis. Um, the responsibilities that they have to them, the, the comfort they have with people who are committed to them, um, all those kind of things. I, I do think there has to be some, some ability to, um, to shift and mold those actual like physical arrangements of how we live if the church is actually going to be called a family. Yeah, I, I think that um, 
it's really important for us to, well, as the church, the inst- the institution, um, to really get a grasp on what we're saying about both the church and the family's place in the church, right? So we've talked about how the family has become um, more atomized, more individualistic, and we've lost sense of that missional role of the family, right? Like Brian's talking about. And so while we need to make decisions about what prioritizing things, that also means though we need to make decisions about becoming missional in our families, opening up to the marginalized, opening up to, so that we're not just sacrificing for the sake of ourselves, but we're also sacrificing for the sake of the world, right? And that these families then aren't just building uh, the next generation to exist in these other families, but we're building them to exist in these families so that they can impact the world around us. And that requires the church to come alongside families, one, to, to have the narrative challenged right? To have the the dominant narrative of our culture challenged. You are not an individual living on your own. Your family does not exist for its own sake. Your family exists for the sake of the world, for the sake of the church, for the sake of of the Lord. But then we need as the church to be able to, um, to help families live into that, right? So Brooks talks about how affluent families have an advantage because they can purchase these, these King groups that aren't, aren't there anymore, right? We can get, um, childcare, we can get these other things. Well, the church can provide those things for people. If, if we're living in intentional community as the church, then if I know somebody who needs to work to make ends meet, and I have the bandwidth and the means to be able to say, watch their kid or, or help in some other way, I can come alongside that person. Maybe the institutional church can do some of those things too. I don't know. There are different creative ways that we need to think through these things. We're able then to come alongside families, but not just families, to come alongside single people. And the church then offers them the, the stability of a family in various, um, in various contexts and in various ways that are tangible, that then can lead to them finding um, that love and stability that they don't have themselves. Jimmy, can you give us a real quick point? <laughs> Yeah, um, I, as, as uh, Father Thibault was talking and as uh, uh, Deacon Matt was talking, um, it just reminded me of the parable of the kingdom of God being like treasure hidden in a field that a man found and then he hid it and then went and sold everything he had and bought that field. And I feel like the kingdom, like what are we talking about here when we talk about the church, we talk about family, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And when Matt's talking about having to make sacrifices, that man had to make sacrifices and buy that field. But that field was worth more than whatever he had that he sold. And I think when we talk about human flourishing, when we talk about the good life, we got to see what, are we, what, what is our vision of that? Is our vision the kingdom of man or is that the kingdom of God? And if it's the kingdom of God, then I feel it includes all of these things that Father Thibault was talking about, that you, Father Brian, were talking about, that um, Deacon Matt were talking about. It's what it means to, to be family. And so when we see people that are marginalized, when we see people in need, and we see that, that the kingdom of God is for them just as it is for us, and that, they're, that they have a place and we need to welcome them. We need to share that with them. And that might mean having to give up that what we have. But I feel like, you know, if our vision is the kingdom of God, then obviously what we give up or what we have to sacrifice economically to make it happen or time or whatever it is, um, I feel like, you know, that would have, that should be of more value to us. One last practical idea. Um, I'm excited about things like fellows programs, you know, people coming right out of college, thinking about faith and work, um, and they live with someone from the church for a time. That's a more structural way, I think, that, that churches are going about this. Um, another way are books um, about like radical hospitality, you know, are, are popular right now. Maybe you guys can throw out some ideas. I mean, some of those book resources for people here. Uh, on Radical Hospitality, you have The Gospel Comes with a Key by, um, oh man. Her name Rosaria is- Champagne Butterfield. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Uh, but it's an excellent book. Uh, really challenging, really hard. Uh, there's a book called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher that, that talks about living intentionally. But there's a spinoff of that called Building uh, a Benedict option by Leah Labresco 
And she gives a lot of really practical ways that we can um, begin living into those things. Um, those are just some that come to the top of my mind. Well, so to tie things up here, I think what we've been trying to say is that um, there are problems with family in our culture. Uh, there are problems with familylessness in our culture. And that works out in so many ways uh, for people individually, psychologically. Uh, however, the church is a you know the church is a family in this sense. Uh, the church is an extended family, um, but it's not an extended family like we've come to see. Like I see Great Aunt Sally once a year at Christmas. It's more like uh, like if we all lived on the same block and we had front porches and we all hung out and we saw each other all the time and our kids were running between each other's houses. And when we went needed sugar, before going to the grocery store, we would go to our next door neighbor. Um, the church is that kind of extended family, and that kind of network, uh, or at least God has called Maybe. us to that. God has called us to that. And it is our responsibility to find ways to forge that more deeply uh, because, uh, because that is the love that he has put within us because that is the power and the mission of the Holy Spirit that he is working out in the world. And, and that vision uh, is a beautiful one that will draw people in, uh, that people will be drawn to, uh, and that will speak, speak the name of Christ in our culture. Thank you to our listeners. This is Devices and Desires. Please like and subscribe to all that stuff. Leave us any comments, and uh, we look forward to talking again soon. What's the, before we go on, what's that clicking sound? Who's clicking? That was Matt's mic. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because he's swinging in his Do you have chair. A zipper? Do you have a zipper on that? You're we on mute. Hear. It <laughs> might be moving my head up and down that's doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. It's Did not it typing. Yes, that's right it right yeah. there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So I was leaning forward and backwards, I think was the problem. Okay. Uh, Matt. <laughs> Do we All put right. him off the island now, or do we? Do we break <laughs> <that away? laughs> Great. Well, uh, let's jump into it.